Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. We are in chapter 30. 30, can you believe that? Chapter 30, that sounds good, doesn't it? And we have 34 chapters, so we're getting close to the end. So do two things, chapter 30, but then open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to look there. If you don't have your Bibles, take your devices and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to be spending some time in there. We're not going to look at that right at first, but we're going to read some lengthy passages in there. Last week we began and Jim led you in um, this topic on the gifts of the Spirit. I don't have any PowerPoint behind me tonight, so I'm just going to walk through old style with some notes that I have in front of me, and I'm going to go very slowly so <laughs> I can make sure I get this. But before we jump into chapter 30, there's some things I want to clarify and just make sure we're all on the same page. First of all, I want to say something about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are for the purpose of ministry. Spiritual gifts are for ministry. The Holy Spirit gives every single believer at least one spiritual gift. And no believer has all of the spiritual gifts. And no one spiritual gift is necessarily found in every believer. And spiritual gifts are given as the Holy Spirit determines. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, he says the Holy Spirit distributes them as he determines. And so when we talk about spiritual gifts, it's always for the purpose of ministry. In other words, your spiritual gift is for other people. My spiritual gift is for you. Your spiritual gift is for me. And our spiritual gifts are for the edifying of the body of Christ at large. So whatever gift God has given to you, it's not for you. It's for other people. And whenever we do not use our spiritual gifts, we are actually robbing the opportunity of ministering to other people. And I've always said this, that every person who joins Scotts Hill Baptist Church should make the church stronger because you're bringing spiritual gifts with you that this church needs, that this body needs. And so it's really, really important um, that we recognize that spiritual gifts are for ministry. All right? Spiritual fruit is for the purpose of maturity. And spiritual fruit is that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You find spiritual fruit in three different clusters. The first cluster has to do with our relationship with God. Love, joy, peace flows from that. Patience, kindness, goodness has to do with our relationship with other people. And gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control has to do with our relationship with ourselves. So spiritual fruit is always for the purpose of ministry. And every believer is to display all of the fruit of the Spirit. And we're to display that in increasing amounts as we are growing in our sanctification in our relationship with Christ. So those are the two things we need to know. Spiritual gifts, ministry. Spiritual fruit is maturity. 
Just say this. Spiritual gifts do not demonstrate maturity. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, here's what he says. He says, you display all the spiritual gifts in the church, but yet they were a very carnal, immature, fleshly, childlike congregation. And while they had the spiritual gifts, that doesn't necessarily relate to maturity. And so sometimes people want to wear their spiritual gift as a badge of maturity. Well, I have this gift and I have this gift. None of it demonstrates maturity. Fruit of the Spirit is what demonstrates maturity. So let's mean to make sure we keep that together and separate. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is another confusing thing that many people have to deal with. Baptism of the Holy Spirit always happens at conversion. Every child of God is baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion. Here's interesting. Some people will say baptism of the Holy Spirit is a subsequent blessing that happens after conversion. You get saved and then you're baptized in the Holy Spirit later. And then they will say you must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they will try to encourage people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Here's what's interesting in Scripture. Now, one time in Scripture, are we ever commanded to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Never. So baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens when you give your life to Christ. You are baptized into the body of Christ at that point. And you are assimilated into the body as an adopted child of God. So baptism happens at conversion. Fullness of the Spirit is an ongoing activity. It is something that should happen over and over and over. And we are commanded to be filled by the Spirit. We see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul commands us, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You go through the book of Acts, and what you'll find is the disciples regularly were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were filled, and they were filled, and they were filled. And so, while baptism is a one-time act that happens at conversion, the fullness of the Spirit of God should be something that happens to us over and over and over. Now, you have all the Holy Spirit in you when you come to faith in Christ. But the fullness of the Spirit is you yielding yourself completely to Him and allowing Him to have all of you. It would be like this, a, a lawnmower with a gas tank that's filled with gas is to the brim, but you have the gas um, valve turned off and there's no flow from that tank into that engine to making it run. It's whenever that valve is opened, all of the fullness of that begins to flow into the motor, and then you've got the power. The same thing is why we have the Holy Spirit fully in us. It's only when I yield to Him and I give Him the right of way in my life that His power is able to flow through me and there's fullness. One of the things I'm looking forward to is in the month of August, we're doing a four-part series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit here at Scottsdale. And we want to really dive deep into the person of the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan calls him the forgotten God. And that's probably more true in a Baptist church than any other place I've ever been in. Because we love to talk about Jesus. We love to talk about the Father. But if we need to be Trinitarian and actually spend a great deal of time of the importance and the essentialness of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. So those are the things that I wanted to lay out to kind of set before us 
that helps us to understand the difference between gifts and fruit. Okay, so tonight I have the wonderful opportunity and the wonderful challenge and the wonderful privilege to talk to you about the most controversial gifts that we find in the New Testament. We're going to be talking about the gift of prophecy. We're going to talk about the gift of teaching, which is not a controversial one. We're going to talk about the gifts of healing. What does that mean? And we're going to talk about uh, speaking in tongues. And so let's begin with prophecy. While we deal with the issue of prophecy, um, there are basically three positions when it comes to prophecy. Uh, Wayne Grudem points out four, and he says three of them what they're not, and one of them what they're, it is. And I'm just going to give them to you. Prophecy, there are many people who say that prophecy is foretelling the future. How many of you have ever heard somebody speak a prophecy in the sense that I'm speaking something that's going to happen in the future? Anybody? Anybody encounter anybody that has ever, you've, you've heard anybody prophesy and speaking about the future for somebody? Say you did in the Revelation series. I did? What did I say? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was God saying that. I just relayed what he said. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, I was thinking, when did I do that? Did I say something about you? I've had a guy, I, I went to a, a conference one time. It was a, a, a church in Baton Rouge. I won't tell you who the pastor was, but I was there and there was this guy that was kind of mingling around with everybody. And he's asking me all kind of questions. And my cousin Scott was with me. He's asking us all kind of questions about our lives. And we don't know who he is, so we're telling him. Next thing we know, he's the speaker. And he gets up there and he says, I have a prophecy tonight. And he looks and he says, there are two young men here that play in a band together. And God has told me that you're going to be very successful and very popular and tour around the world and everything. And he called us up and just was going to pray. And everybody's like amazed. Oh, man, how do you know that? Well, I just talked to him about it. Well, he prayed over us and everything, laid his hand, was speaking in tongues and everything like that, and just made this big to do. Well, um, I did some studio work and I played on the stage here, but and I played, I did play in a band around the world, but it wasn't anything. And so neither one of us became any kind of musicians or anything like that. So I've had personally somebody speak over me and prophesy something that was going to happen in my life that absolutely did not come true. I, st I still have some time left in life. Maybe I'll be able to <laughs> be that. I don't know. But um, there's 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 the issue of foretelling. And there are people out there that look at prophecy from the standpoint as I'm going to tell the future. So there's the foretelling. There's a second aspect of the definition is forth telling. That is proclaiming truth. That is speaking the revelation of God's word. And so in prophecy, in that sense, is somebody just simply being able to communicate in a sound doctrinal manner, God's word in somebody's life that is discerning of the situations or the circumstances of their life. That would be that forth telling. But Grudem says that it's neither of those. And what he tends to say is that it is spontaneously 
telling something that has been given to you from God about their life. Now, that's an interesting position. How many of you have ever heard that position before reading this book? I really haven't either. I'm thinking, well, wow, that's a very interesting position of how does that differ from, and I just ask you that, spontaneously telling something given from God about somebody's life, how does that differ maybe from just simply forth-telling? Any thoughts on that? He says it's not forth-telling, but it's spontaneously speaking. Yeah, I think it's similar. I think it's very similar. Now, in this chapter, he also says that there's a distinction between prophets and apostles. And I think he's right there. You look at the Old Testament, they're prophets. And in the New Testament, they're apostles. And then he makes a distinction between prophecy. You remember what he said? He says, New Testament prophecy has a lesser authority than Old Testament prophecy. And he gives a number of illustrations. Remember, he says in Acts 21.4, Paul was told by a prophet that he should not go to Jerusalem, but Paul disobeyed him and went anyway. Now, did Paul sin by doing that because he disobeyed this guy who told him he shouldn't go? So you say, no, Paul didn't sin. Did he have as much the Spirit of God as this other guy did? Well, apparently so. So that makes it seem like, okay, that authority that was spoken to Paul is less than maybe the authority of the Old Testament prophet. Remember in the Old Testament, if you prophesied and you got it wrong, what happened to you? Yeah, there was no margin for error. You know, it's not like being a meteorologist and getting things half right half the time. In the Old Testament, if you were wrong, you were dead. And so you had, they weighed very carefully because it was the command and the word of God. He also used Acts 21, 10 and 11, where Agabus says that you, the Jews are going to bind you and turn you over to the Romans. And he makes the point that the Jews did not bind him. The Romans bound him. So he was partly right, but he was partly wrong. And so therefore, it doesn't carry the same weight then he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, he says that um, we are to prophesy, test everything, hold on to what is good. So in other words, test all of the prophecies or the prophetic words that's being given and evaluate it, make sure that it's right and hold on to what's good. So it makes it sound like you have to try to discern what's being said. So is there some lesser authority? And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29 through 30, he says that the prophets speak two to three, and then uh, two to three speak and then weigh what is good. So if there's less authority than it, then there seems to be more room for error, right? And so a person can say, I have the gift of prophecy, and I'm going to speak some things, but maybe not in the full detail of all the revelational truth. Now, let me ask you this. Does any of that concern you? And why? This fuzzy. <laughs> like, I mean, I read it even the chapter last week to this week. He 
you seem to not be firm, like, you know what I mean? Like solid himself. There wasn't a solid. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he's just not quite, uh, he gives a lot of room for people to say, okay, I'm going to practice the gift of prophecy, but I may be wrong here. Um, and, and, and we're going to look at that a little bit. One of, the, one of the concerns that I have about that is that it seems to give people a lot of room for error. Do you remember what happened when Donald Trump was running for re-election and he was going to all these churches and all of these guys were prophesying that he was going to what? He was going to win. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there were many people of those prophets of these churches that had to go forward and apologize. They had to apologize because and now many people are saying, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. OK, if you're a prophet and you got this wrong, then the church should stone you. And of course, nobody's going to do that. And of course, that's what fits in to that pattern of being less authoritative from Grudem's perspective there. So it's less authoritative, but it's still wrong. Now, could they have been right in the sense that they would say, yes, we prophesied that he'd win the election. We really feel that he won, but it was stolen. So we got it partly right, you know, and so they can take that position. Yes, ma'am. And okay, true discernment is, and, and discernment is a gift. Um, hey, you guys, does any of this make you feel uncomfortable or uneasy? And I, so I immediately put myself in the position of the one prophesying. So what would what would make me uneasy about prophesying about some event or happenstance in somebody's life? Is it? If I'm doing that and I haven't already gone to the Word to test my own thoughts that I'm about to give somebody else to make sure that what I'm telling them is even inside the boundaries, then I'm, I'm already wrong. I don't think you should do that. I don't think you just randomly blurt out, oh, this is the truth about your life without having tested it yourself. Okay, that's good. And, and it does go back to the issue of, of understanding God's Word, going back to the issue of discernment. And actually discerning the situation that's around you as well. I think too, if somebody is like known as a prophet, it gives them a certain like almost like a title, and uh, they have certain authority to other people, and um, other people take their word without discernment, especially. It is. How many times have you heard somebody say, God told me 
or Jesus told me to tell you. How many times have you heard that? Now, when somebody says that to you, what's your initial reaction within you? What's that? Convulsion. Convulsion. It could be that. It could be intimidation. It could be, well, you know what? If I disagree with you, then I'm disagreeing with Jesus. What if they have not been discerning in what they're about to say? What if they have not been biblically, doctrinally sound in what they're about to say? And so I think that's always a dangerous thing. And one of the things that Grudem does point out, and one of the things I've always taught is this. You're not going to hear me say, unless I read from the scripture, and it says, God says this. But I'm not going to say to you, well, well, God told me to say this or to do this. What I will say is as best as I can discern, and as best as I can understand from God's word and the Spirit's work in me, this is what I understand we need to do or we should do. It's always based upon that because there gives room in there for, number one, the fallacy of the human flesh. We're, we're not infallible. We can make mistakes. And, and so I think the gift of prophecy, and, and I actually wrote down a definition that I'll give you in just a few moments. But we can see that there can be some, some kind of difficulty, some fuzziness when we're dealing with this. He says spontaneous revelation is something God may suddenly bring to mind or something that God may impress on someone's consciousness in such a way that the person has a sense that it is from God. Now, I like that, but there's some danger to that, too. When he talks about revelation, he's not talking about new revelation. He's talking about revelation that comes from the revealed word. There's some people who believe in progressive revelation. Okay. And what they do is they hold to that, that God keeps adding new truth. I have a new revelation. Anytime somebody comes to you and says, I've got a new revelation and it's counter to God's word, run. Don't listen to it. You will find yourself in false areas. Matter of fact, it's from this revelation thing that many movements have come. Some of you may remember hearing some of these phrases. I have a word of revelation. That was a movement for a while. I have a word of knowledge. Anybody remember that? I was in a church one time and a guy just stopped and said, I've got a word of knowledge for you. And it's like, okay, what did he just say? I've just got an impression from the Holy Spirit that I need to share with you. But people can misunderstand that as something different. I have a word of enlightenment. Those are some things. And so while I believe that prophecy in the New Testament can be the spontaneous revelation from God's word prompted by the Spirit of God to speak on behalf of a circumstance or a situation that can be edifying to someone. That's prophecy. That's New Testament prophecy. It is forth telling God's truth in conjunction with sound biblical doctrine guided by the Spirit of God. And there are people who have the gift of being able to, there it goes, discern. I believe that my spiritual gifts are one is the spiritual gift of prophecy in the sense of being able to discern circumstances, 
sitting with people in counseling, being able to listen to what's going on and to direct them according to the words of God to edify them. I have, I believe, the gift of prophecy, but I also have the gift of teaching and I have the gift of discernment. My wife has the gift of discernment. Um, she's the one that told me I have the gift of discernment. So, um, so um, I wouldn't even know any of these gifts without her. But, but these are some of the things. Now, he says this. How should we best view the gift of prophecy? And this is what I said. Someone who is gifted to speak forth the word of God that is grounded in sound doctrine. And guided by the Spirit of God, though it may not represent full revelation about that person or that situation. That's, I believe, a good definition of New Testament prophecy. It's not something weird way over here. And that's why the Apostle Paul says of all the gifts, pursue the gift of prophecy. Why? Because that's what edifies one another. That's what edifies one another in the word of God. So if we all pursue the gift of prophecy, now that doesn't mean we're all going to have that, but it means this. I'm going to pursue sound doctrine. I'm going to pursue discernment. I'm going to pursue edifying you with the word of God that will bring you to a place that will be helpful and fruitful and productive in your life. Now, you may have heard of a number of other definitions but and it is spontaneous. Let me let me give you an illustration. I'm in the airport one day with my son-in-law. We're getting ready to fly to Ecuador. We're in. I don't remember what airport we were in. We flew out of Wilmington. We had a layover somewhere and um, we're sitting in the food court and just looking around. And there's this this girl at the table and I'm looking at her from across and I can see that she was very distraught. Okay, discernment, just watching her. And I'm watching her try to eat, and then she'll just put her fork down, and she'll just, she's very distraught. And then I felt that the Spirit of God was saying, go and pray for her. She needs prayer. And I was thinking, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. We're in an airport. This girl's going to think I am a freak. I'm not going to go over there and do that. I'm sitting down there and I start a conversation with Joe and then the Holy Spirit just presses upon my heart again. She needs you to pray for her. Go pray for her. And so I told Joe, I said, Joe, I just feel that the Spirit of God is leading me to go pray for that girl over there. So I'm going to go pray. So I get up, I walk over there and she's sitting like right there. I said, young lady, I don't know you and you don't know me. She was a young black girl. And I said, but I was sitting over there and I felt that God's spirit told me to come and pray for you because you need prayer. And she just broke down. She said, my dad just died and my mom's at home and I'm trying to fly home to get to her. Would you please pray for me? And so I just prayed for her and I went back and I sat down. Now, I think that's a combination of sensitivity to the spirit of God. I think it's a combination of discernment. I think it was a combination of was there an encouraging word in that? And could I speak a word? I did through prayer for her. And I just let her know that I'd be praying for her. And she said, thank you for your sensitivity. And she said, I feel so much better now. It's happened with Chris and me walking on the beach. And there was a lady sitting 
And she was crying, and I told Chris, I said, we need to go pray for her. There's something bothering her. So I just walked up to her. I said, ma'am, we notice you're crying. We want to pray for you. She said, thank you. She said, this is the anniversary of the death of my son who drowned right there. And it's just like, okay. Is that a spiritual gift? Is that discernment? Is that a combination of those things? It can be. But I think the biggest thing is just being sensitive to the Spirit of God in us and allowing to keep in step with Him. And I can tell you numerous times like that. I picked two guys up at the gas station. They just got out of prison. Got them in the truck with me. I said, what are you in for? He said, I tried to kill a man. I said, great! <laughs> so, uh, what are you in for? I raped a woman. Great! I got a murderer and a pervert. And uh, so... Um, That was in my young Christian days. <laughs> I, I did have the gift of discernment. I shared with them about Jesus. I said, if they kill me, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. So I brought them to the bus station. So any questions about prophecy? Anything? Is, does that help to understand? Or is there some other points that you have that you might want to share? Could you repeat that Yes. Someone who is gifted to speak forth the Word of God that is grounded in sound doctrine and guided by the Spirit of God, though it may not represent full revelation about the situation or the person. I should have made a PowerPoint. I, should have made a PowerPoint. I thought if I make a PowerPoint, I can take a picture of it, right? It's recorded. That's true. Oh, it is recorded. Okay. They were talking about prophecy potentially. Right. Because it's a little circular. If can you prophesy something that isn't scripture because scripture is complete? You, you know what I mean? Right. So I, I kind of hear that maybe are we using would a different definition help or a different label of prophecy, even though Paul said would help? Would that help the matter? Because we say discernment, we say. Yeah, discernment is a different gift from prophecy, um, but I do think they can they work they can work together. Um, now, as far as the uh, last week, you talked about continuation of some gifts and the cessation of some gifts, right? Um, and there are many people who believe, such as John MacArthur and others, that all the sign gifts, such as prophecy. Um, well, maybe not prophecy, but uh, the gifts of healing, speaking in tongues, and those kinds of things have ceased um, and that they no longer function. Um, and then there are people like John Piper and many others who are continuationalists who believe that the gifts still continue today. Um, I am not a cessationalist. I don't think that they all ceased. What I would say, and I shared this with James, I am a caution, cautionary, uh, continuationalist. Very discerning. Very discerning? Yeah, my wife told me to say that. So uh, cautionary, which means this. I believe that I would never put God in a box and say these things can never, ever happen and he would never use them. Besides, I have seen them used on the mission field. Well, we might not see them here. There are places where we see those. Now, let me just remind you of this. The Apostle Paul says this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
He says, verse 22, he says that the gift of tongues is for unbelievers. The gift of prophecy is for believers. And the gift of prophecy is proclaiming God's word in such a way that's edifying to build up the body. The gift of tongues is for unbelievers because, and that can also be true, it's a sign gift of healing as well. And that can be true as well. Um, and the reason I say I'm cautiously continuationalist is because I believe that a lot of ways that we hear about these gifts being used are misused and abused, but it's on the mission field. I'll give you an example. I have a dear friend who is in Africa, Bill Rogers. He worked as a missionary in Africa and he was with a, a translator one day. And as they were going about this one village, he met this young man, started talking to him, and they just got in a conversation, and he just shared the whole gospel with them, just sharing the gospel with them. His translator was just in awe. He said, when did you learn Swahili? He said, what are you talking about? He said, you just shared the gospel with that young man in his language. He said, no, I didn't. I spoke in English. He says, no, you did not. You spoke in that language and shared the gospel with him perfectly. And he said in his mind, he understood English. Now, sometimes the gift of speaking in tongues, you have to ask the question, is it the speaking or is it the hearing or is it both? Because we don't know. I had another friend who was in Brazil and he met this general and he was talking with them and shared the gospel with them and pulled his New Testament out. Same thing happened. The translator said, the interpreter said, when did you learn Spanish? You never even spoke a word of Spanish. You just shared the gospel with this guy. And as a result, that general pulled out this little Bible and he had all of his men there. He says, from now on, this is part of the required equipment that we are going to carry into battle. And, uh, and so his name is Randy Smith. And I got another friend who did the same thing, but it was in a church in America. So I say cautiously that I think there are in times that we, that we see those gifts used. Now, I think that in our definitions, the confusing is we no longer have prophets, but we have apostles, but we still use the word prophecy. And so I, that can create some confusion. So I think maybe taking that, understanding the biblical terms, and I think he does a pretty good job in the front part of that, of defining what prophecy is from Old Testament to New Testament. Um, but I think that what we'll have to do is really think biblically through that, and work that down in a way, the definitions that are consistent with the teaching of Scripture as a whole. And it makes it really tough sometimes. So I don't even know if I answered your question because I kind of forgot it in there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and what you do see in that, and, and again, the prophesy, um, taking it from an Old Testament version of what the people would believe and what we understand prophecy to be in the New Testament, I think that what sometimes there are people who have incredible discernment and we would consider them prophets of our time. I don't remember if, how many of you remember Francis Schaeffer. Uh, he was an incredible, what people would call a prophet 
of our day because he had such a discernment of culture and what's happening in the world. Chuck Colson was another one who at prison fellowship was just had a keen understanding of that. But in that specific instance, I think that you will see that it's going to be the, I think the continued proclaiming of God's word and the truth. The other thing is the dreaming and visions. You know what's really happening and what's really interesting in the Middle East among Muslims right now? Dreams. And a lot of them are coming to faith in Christ because of dreams that they're having. And the dreams that they're having are dreams of the Lord Jesus appearing to them and sharing with them. I believe that 100%. That happened to me. Really? Is that right? right I, I had two. Um, my sister's a Christian. She always had been. And uh, for years. And I had a dream one night. I woke up, I was ringing wet. And it was a picture of Christ with people. They were in robes. My sister was there. And I wanted to go and talk to her. And the dream was that I'm not worthy. So I just turned around and walked away. It was like he looked through a window and said, there is a way. And then the very next night, I had a dream. Woke up sweat, ran away again, and I seen him coming in the class. So tell me what happened as a result of those dreams. I, I got saved. That when you say you, you surrendered your life to Christ. Yeah. I, I just, I was... I, when I came to my life in Christ, I was going down Scottsdale Loop Road one day, and I just prayed, and I said, I don't, I was raised in a pastor home with a lot of legalism. Yeah. And I said, I just don't know what it means to be a Christian. You know, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to believe. I don't know what church to go to. I don't know. And then I went home that day, right after work, and I opened my Bible to, uh, this gives me chills, I'm saying, think about it to Peter and Cornelius. Uh. Cornelius was a very devout man. He paid alms to God. For all intents and purposes, he was a saved and devout man, but Christ had died. He had not surrendered to Christ. And an angel appeared to him. And it just came to me after I read that. I will not let you be led astray huh. if you trust in me. Huh. And that's when I got down with my knees. How about that? Here's the thing that, that, that we don't control how God works. I think of Augustine, who was an early church father. This guy was pagan through and through. I mean, he was living a rebellious, promiscuous, sinful life. And one day he was just struggling. And he was sitting in his garden. And he had the scriptures there. And he didn't know what to do. He heard a child's voice in the next yard saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he's like, what? And the kid just kept saying, take up and read, take up and read. So he picked up the Bible in Romans and he read and in and, and the scripture, I forget what scripture it was. Same one as Luther. Was it the same one as Luther? 24? No, wait. No. Wait, Romans only have 16. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's and it and reading that, he's converted. 
gives his life to Christ. And so there, there are a lot of ways that the Spirit of God's going to work. And, and one thing that, that's a reminder to us of is that there's no one way that God uses to draw people to himself and to give them life. He uses so many different ways. I think of uh, C.H. Spurgeon. He was going to church when he was 16 years old. He was going to church one morning. It was a little tiny church, kind of like at a strip mall place. It was snowing. It was cold. He got there. There was nobody there. The preacher didn't show up himself. And there was one layman in there who looked up and he says, well, I guess I got to preach. And there were about three people in there. And he just opened to Isaiah and he read a passage about come to the Lord and be saved. Come to the Lord and be saved. And he kept saying that. And, and C. Spurgeon said he was one of the most illiterate men I ever met in my life. He said he was the worst preacher I ever heard in my life. But he kept saying the same thing. Come to the Lord and be saved. He said, finally, he looked at me. He said, young man, come to the Lord and be saved. He said, at that point, I was saved. And it was just so simple. I wish that would happen. I wouldn't have to preach for 40 minutes. You know, and y'all would probably wish it would happen too. So, so anyway, those are the things there's prophecy. And what you're going to find is a lot of different positions that we have in that. But just find and understand the, the, the basic, this has been helpful to me to just to be able to understand it and clarify it. Now, when it comes to teaching, he defines teaching the ability to explain Scripture and apply it to people's lives. I don't think any of us have any problem with the section on teaching, do we? Any questions on the issue of teaching? What makes teaching a spiritual um, I believe that having spiritual insight... And the ability to take the word of God and contextualize it to its, its current time, your current time, and to teach it in a way that brings out biblical principles that people can understand and apply to their lives. I think that's um, uh, the gift of teaching. Um, and, and, it, and it's not necessarily for one age group. Some people have the gift of teaching when it comes to children. That's why we have a children's pastor. Some with student ministry to be able to contextualize it in that setting um, and be able to understand and grasp the different biblical principles in such a way. Um, some people can communicate God's word, but they're not very good at teaching it. Um, some people can take a really simple statement and make it very complex to where you don't understand it. Some people, I think, good teachers take complex things and can make them simple to understand. Think of the Lord Jesus. I mean, he's the son of God. There's nothing he didn't know. Look how he taught. He taught in such a way that he contextualized everything into a, a, a way that they understood it. And it was deep. And, and when you read through the Gospel of Mark, there's a common phrase every time Jesus taught. And they were amazed. And they were amazed. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, two words you'll see. Immediately and immediately. That was a hurried man's gospel. And then, and they were amazed that he taught with authority. All these other scribes, they quoted other scribes. Jesus just quoted himself. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know, so help me, me. So, um, since he is God. So, let's deal with any other questions on teaching? Healing. <laughs> okay, healing. There are two convictions, he says, that believers hold to that flow from Christ's work of redemption on a cross. I'm just going to kind of summarize these two. 
He says, believers have freedom from sin. We agree with that. And I have to read this one twice. Believers had freedom from physical weaknesses and sickness. Now, when I just read it in that context, what do you think about that? And when it comes to healing, there are two things we believe. We have freedom from sin because Christ's work on the cross, and we have freedom from physical weaknesses and illness, sickness. Sounds like we shouldn't struggle with it. Well, the context of it is ultimately we do. And that's glorification. That we know that's freedom from sin, and that's going to be a reality that the presence of sin will be gone one day. And that because of Christ's work on the cross and our relationship with Him, we have freedom from physical weaknesses and flaws ultimately one day. It's what theologians call the already but not yet. The already but not yet. We're already sons and daughters of God, but we do not yet fully comprehend what that's going to be. We're already redeemed, but we have not yet fully experienced all of the ramifications of redemption. So we live in the already, but not yet. So since we're in the already and the not yet, God still steps in in the intermediate and provides healing. So here's my question. According to Grudem, what is God's purpose for healing? He gives four purposes. What is God's purpose for healing? Do you remember? What's that? Okay, yeah, authenticate or a sign. We say, he says, a sign to unbelievers. Healing can be a sign. There's a sign gift. What else? To bring comfort and health. Glorified. The other one is continued service in his kingdom. Brings healing to his servants for continued service in his kingdom. And for glorification. What are some ways that God brings about healing? He talks about in there. Some ways that God does bring about healing that maybe sometimes we don't necessarily always identify. Can God use... Okay, God uses doctors. He gives men and women, surgeons and doctors, wisdom of the human body that can help to bring healing. Medication. We take medication, and when you take medication, you do so because you believe that it will heal you. God gives us natural remedies that help us with our ailments, you know. Um, what is that? Uh, all kind of different things. What's the wart thing? The, the, uh, there's, I was looking at something this past week. What? I don't know. You get, there's all kind of junk out there. Yeah, I'm not talking about cannabis, okay? So, um, but, you know, some people say, yeah, that's great healing medicine. Um, um, supernatural power. Supernatural intervention God uses for healing. Now, does the Word of God instruct us to pray for healing? If so, where? Where do we find illustrations of God instructing us to pray for healing? Okay, James chapter 5. Do we see Jesus praying for healing? He calls out to the Father um, before he raises Lazarus from the dead. 
He calls out to the Father before he casts out a particular demon because he told his disciples that this kind of demon takes prayer and fasting. Um, we see instances of the Apostle Paul praying over people, and we see constantly the encouragement in Scripture to pray for one another. Okay? How should we pray for healing? If we're going to pray for healing, how should we ask God? What are some elements that you think are very important? I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Some people will say that's a cop-out. And I've had people say that to me. That's a cop-out. Because if you just say, thy will be done, and I'm not disagreeing with you because I believe that, but people say, thy will be done just simply says, well, you're not really asking God for anything. You're really not pleading for anything. Well, I'm asking for his will to be done. <laughs> that's pretty important. How did you believe? Okay, and believe, yeah. Have confidence that God can heal. Have confidence that God desires to heal. Is there anything wrong with that? Okay. Um, have faith that he has the ability to do anything that he desires. Trust in his sovereignty. And that's where his will be done comes in. And here's the other one. Seek to glorify God even if you're not healed. So here's my question. Is God obligated to heal everyone? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've always said that if a person prays and, and prays and calls out and they're healed, we rejoice in that. We celebrate with that. And then they move on into their life. But the person who trusts God in their faith keeps growing and keeps growing in the midst of an illness that they struggle with. To me, I see a continued deep faith that keeps glorifying God in the midst of that. Um, and I've dealt with people who have struggled with both of those things. Um, he talks about in there what kind of people could have the gift of healing. Now, he talks about gifts of healing. And this is where a lot of people um, have a problem. Many people think that the, the, the gift of healing, as we see in the New Testament, no longer functions today. There, how many of you have heard of faith healers? How many of you have seen faith healers on television? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and a lot of these are setups. There was a guy I'll never forget. Oh, my goodness. This is what I used to do when I was lost. I'd get drunk and watch these guys on TV. And, uh, no. But uh, this guy, R.W. Shambach. Anybody remember R.W. Shambach? He was in New Orleans, and, and he... <laughs> He was telling the story. He said, I was one day, this woman came up on the stage and she was overweight. She couldn't hardly breathe. She couldn't walk. She came for prayer and God told me to hit her. And I said, what? He said, God told me to hit her. 
And so I hauled off and I hit her and knocked her to the ground. When she stood up, she was 200 pounds lighter. <laughs> That's what he said. Now, I don't believe that. <laughs> if that's the case, let's get in line and hit each other tonight, you know? We can go on a Weight Watchers thing. That would be really cool. It's 200, but... Yeah, well, it just depends on how, hard, how many knuckles I use. About 40 pounds yeah, but I mean, I mean, what would you think as... I mean, I, my first thing was, what happened to her clothes, you know? <laughs> you know? So anyway... Um, there, there's some crazy stuff out there. So when it comes to the gift of healing, my question was, if you really have the gift of healing, why aren't you at Johns Hopkins healing all those little kids? I love that music, right? When that came, <laughs> do you hear how that perfect timing? Why aren't you going up and down and healing all the little children? Why aren't you going to the cancer wards and going from place to place and laying on hands? Why are you spending your time in a crusade where people are giving you money to knock people down? If you really have the gift of healing in that way and to really edify the body, why is it not being used like that? So when we talk about, and actually it's in the plural, gifts of healing. It's gifts. Um, when you think about healing, what would be some ways that maybe you read in here or some other ways that you think maybe the gifts of healing could operate today in a certain way? And if so, what way would they be? Prayer. Prayer. Yeah. I've been in, yeah, we have a great hospice center in uh, Wilmington um, and been there and just the, the dignity that they bring to those last moments and the, and the kindness that they demonstrate is, is really sweet. You talked about prayer. One of the things that Grudem brings out is people whose prayer for healing seems to frequently be answered. People who have a passion to pray for people and there seems to be the favor of God on them in answering the prayer. Not always, but frequently. And that might be a mark that a person has that. Or this, can people bring comfort and healing to those who may need spiritual healing or mental healing through counseling and service and speaking the words to them and encouraging them and God using them as a means of bringing that to their lives. Yeah, I think that, that there can be gifts of that, but I don't think that it necessarily functions in a way that maybe some of our charismatic brothers and sisters put a lot of emphasis on it. Now, I believe in the power of prayer. In James chapter 5, he says, if you're sick, call the elders of the church. We have a practice here at Scottsdale that if anybody calls the elders, then we meet with them and we anoint them with oil and we pray over them. We pray that believing that God has the ability to heal, 
we're believing that God has affection on these individuals who are suffering. And we're calling out by faith on their behalf that God would bring healing to them. And we pray and we trust God with that. We have seen in the past, years ago, individuals who have been healed just miraculously and just walked away and just thought, wow, you know, went to the doctor, got checked. They were clear. So we know that has happened. We've seen individuals that have not been. But as we pray over them, we continue to pray for them. And it's one of those cases where they continue to bring glory to God. So I believe in healing. I also believe that God is sovereign and um, that his will will be done in this issue. And we want to encourage people to that. Now, what is one of the worst things you can say to a person who has been praying and is not experiencing healing? What's the worst thing? Some of you nod your head. What is it? You don't have enough faith. Wow. Yeah. That is a horrible thing to say. Because what it does is it puts their process of healing clearly on themselves. Now, it is true that Jesus was not able to do many miracles in Nazareth because of their lack of faith. But we're talking about a brother or sister in Christ who's been calling out to God and trusting God and believing and believing and claiming God's word and walking by faith and yet no healing. And then to go to them and say, you don't have any faith is probably one of the cruelest things you can do to a brother or sister in Christ. Um, um, because what that does is tell them that they're spiritually weak and as a result that God is not going to walk with them through this difficult time. And in fact, that may even be punishment. And that's horrible, horrible to say. Um, so I think that one of th those things would be very tough. Okay, I have one minute to deal with tongues. Shandala. Yeah. All right. Um, <clears throat> did you find the chapter, this section on tongues in Grudem's book helpful? Unclear? Clear? Um, confusing? What? Most of it reinforced what I was taught growing up. Okay. And what were you taught growing up? Essentially that uh, it's like you said when you gave your explanations earlier, it's uh, speaking a known, well, what I was taught growing up was a known language. I didn't hear as much growing up about the, um, the spiritual, just the praying side of it, the, that portion, but speaking the known language, but that an interpreter must be present for that to be able to interpret it. And otherwise it's who is it to, like, who is it for at that point? Because it's not, you get no, nothing from it, so... It's for the other person. There used to be an interpreter to be able to verify that. Okay. Um, anybody in here grew up in a church other than a Baptist church? Okay. What churches? Pentecostal holiness. They were speaking in tongues there, wasn't there? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you've got some experience in this area of knowing what speaking in tongues is. And I was raised Southern Baptist. And so when we went into that, I thought they'd all lost their minds. 
<laughs> that's at time 14. <laughs> Yeah. Totally. And I was just sitting there. But I mean, some of it was really interesting, too. They used to call, you know, from the congregation for musicians and people to come and sing in the choir. And they all would pray at once, different prayers uh -huh. at once, out loud, and try to outdo each other. That was interesting. But it, it, it They had to so God could hear them. So. Yeah, there's. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I've, I've been in Pentecostal churches. I've been in a church where I've seen them do it right, um, um, and I've been in a lot of churches where it was very confusing. Um, but let me just say this: the word, the Greek word "glossa," "glossa" refers to a known language. Anytime you see the word "tongues" in the plural. It is a known language. When anytime you see the word tongue, except for when it's speaking of the tongue, it is an unknown language. Um, and people take different positions on this. So whenever they're speaking in tongues, and, and one of the things Grudem does bring out, which is helpful, is the fact that the, we use tongues, but it really should be languages. They were speaking in languages. For example, known languages. Speaking in tongues is better described as speaking in a known language that may not be known to the one who is speaking it. It is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit or uh, intervention of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 12, you can see that on the day of Pentecost. He's speaking and he mentions all the people who are amazed from different nations because they are hearing these Galileans speaking their language. Now, it says they were speaking a known language that they didn't know. So the apostles, the disciples were all speaking and all these people are hearing it. Now, again, the question is, were they speaking a, a different language or were they hearing a different language? It could be both. And I think it probably is both because it says they were speaking in tongues and they were hearing their language. Okay. And so they didn't know this language. Yes, Emory. Uh, I, I agree and understand that. But there, there's one thing, you know, where Paul was talking about where he's praying in the spirit in tongues. Yep. Chapter 14. Uh, yep. Uh, are we talking the same thing here? No. And I'm going to get to that. Okay. Okay. So the first one, yeah, the first one is dealing with the known language. That's tongues. That's plural. Acts chapter 10, verse 44 through 47. That's Paul. I'm sorry, Peter and Cornelius. What happens? He has a dream. He has a vision. He goes to Cornelius' house. He shares with them, lays hands on them. They are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they are speaking in tongues, in a known language, speaking to those Gentiles. And the Gentiles are also speaking that known language, even though they may not have known it. So there's an instance. Acts chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, are the Ephesian believers 
who were baptized in John's baptism, but they didn't know about the Holy Spirit and they were baptized. This is called um, the Gentile Pentecost is what it's often referred to. And they speak in tongues, a known language. And so it's foreign to them, but it is known language to others. So anytime you see it in the plural sense like that, it is referring to a known language. Now, then we find, and that's why I wrote prophecy is for believers, tongues is for unbelievers. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. Then there's a tongue that is an unknown language. It, anytime you see it in the singular, with the exception of verse 27, because it talks about a man speaking a tongue, which means a specific language. Other than that, it's always an unknown language. In fact, if you have a King James Version, that the word unknown is actually written in there. It's not in the original Greek manuscripts, but it's written in there because it refers to an unknown language. And so many people will say that that is a prayer language. Now, when you get to the issue of the singular, there are two schools of thought there. There are many people who say that this represents a prayer language. All of chapter 14 that we're going to read deals with that. And I'm just going to read through the chapter in a moment together with you. Other individuals like John MacArthur say that the unknown language is a counterfeit tongue. And it refers to a false tongue. In that chapter 14, when Paul is speaking about that, he's speaking sarcastically about it because he is not approving it. But he's saying that when you speak in a tongue, you're speaking to God. He's talking kind of sarcastically. And that while the gift of prophecy edifies the body, the gift of speaking in this tongue only edifies yourself. And he's not saying that in a positive way, but in a sarcastic way. Because remember, all gifts are for ministry. All gifts are for edifying the body. And if this is a gift and it only edifies you, then it's not a very good gift. So the two different positions, it's either a prayer language or it is a counterfeit tongue. Now, I happened to meet with a missionary that was in a particular church that they practiced speaking in tongues and in somebody interpreting. And he was a missionary to Peru. He was sitting on the back, he and his wife, and this guy gets up, he goes to the podium, and he starts speaking in, a, in tongues, a known language. And he's just going on and on and on and on. And the pastor comes up and says, does anyone here have an interpretation? He raised his hand. He went to the front. He said, I just want you to know that I'm from Peru. For the last five minutes, this man has been speaking a Peruvian language. And for the last five minutes, he has been blaspheming the name of Jesus, which was a counterfeit tongue. And he said, I'm going to tell you what he said. And told him, here's the thing that we need to remember. The devil can counterfeit anything, but he cannot counterfeit holiness. And so while he can counterfeit these things, the danger of running after the gifts instead of running after the giver of gifts is you can find yourself in some counterfeit places. So you need to be very careful. So what do we hold here? People hold different positions when it comes to this. Um, um, so let's read chapter 14. You follow along and I'm going to read. Then I'm going to make some closing remarks. 
Paul is speaking. I just got me some new glasses, so I'm having to get adjusted to these things. Shandala, no, just kidding. Okay, just kidding. Okay, do you have an interpreter? I just said, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Isn't that interesting? That you may prophesy, that you may be able to speak the word of God effectively, doctrinally sound, with discernment and all these. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. There's a singular, okay? For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue. I'm chapter 14, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I'm on verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be given thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue." And just for your understanding, the number 10,000 is the highest number in Greek, which means basically is an infinite amount. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And the law is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, um, um, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speaks in tongues and outsiders 
or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Then we already hear that a few minutes ago. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. Then he goes on. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any of you speak in a tongue, let it be only two or three at the most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, we hear a lot there. There are some people who hold that they have a prayer language. And they feel that they can pray in this unknown language, and it brings them into a relationship closer to God. Grudem holds to that in the book. It even says that believers can be encouraged through such a prayer language. Um, some people have that conviction. Other people will say, no, I don't have that conviction. Um, I pray in accordance with the Word of God. But one of the things we do know is that in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, he says that there are times we don't know what to pray and the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groans and moanings too deep for words. That's not a picture of a prayer language in an unknown tongue. That's a picture that the Holy Spirit at times just carries us along in our prayers and sometimes we just don't know what to do. Now, I will tell you this. When it comes to the issue of speaking in tongues, we need to be very careful with it. There are clear parameters around it. There's some people who will say that it is completely ceased. John MacArthur would say that the reason Paul is talking sarcastically that is because within a few years it will cease. Now, I will tell you this, that as you go through the New Testament, and as you progress through the New Testament, remember 1st and 2nd Corinthians were the first letters written in the New Testament. And so as you go through it, you see less and less activity of speaking in tongues and the sign gifts happening in the life of the church. So what do we take from this? I think that we need to just say that people will have different convictions on that. Wherever our conviction is, we need to make sure that we're in keeping with what God's Word teaches. We believe in order. In the, in the service. My question is, if somebody gets up and wants to speak in tongues, but there's no interpreter, how will they know there's not an interpreter? And if they do speak and there's not an interpreter, then they're out of line. I've actually was in a church where I saw a person stand, speak very orderly, and another person stand and give testimony to what happened. And then later, another person stood and no one stood to interpret. And the pastor said, you, my sister, are out of order. Please be seated. And nobody was offended. It was like, OK. That is the most organized biblical way I've ever seen that expressed. I didn't know what to do with it. Didn't know what to, to, how to take it. But I will say this in closing. Let me just tell you a couple of things. 
Tongues are not a sign of baptism of the Spirit. Okay? Tongues are not a sign of the fullness of the Spirit. Tongues are not a sign of spiritual fruit. Tongues are not a sign of great faith. Tongues are not a sign of maturity. And tongues are not a gift for every believer. There are some that will say that the evidence of your salvation is speaking in tongues. That is completely contrary to all the teaching of Scripture. Um, and it is an unbalanced view. So when we come to these issues, Paul says, do not seek it. Do not forbid it. Real simple. I'm going to seek Jesus. I went to a church, and I'm just going to close in this, okay? I went to a church years ago, same church where the guy prophesied over us. My cousin was going to that church. And they just said, Phil, you got to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. you got to get baptized. I was young in my faith, and I felt like there was something missing in my walk. And so I went with them that night, and man, they kept saying, well, you got to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray over you. And so they took me in this little room, and they started praying. Laid their hands, and man, they were praying in tongues. They were going, and they were going. And I was sitting there just thinking, okay, Lord, if you want me to do something, do something. And they were going and going and going, and nothing was happening. And I thought, man, they're going to think I'm a heathen. i got to do something. So I came up with my word, Shandala. I said, Shandala, I'm going to He's got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Woo! Man, they were all excited. They were all parading around me, and they were celebrating. And I knew what I did wasn't real. It was fake. I just, I just wanted him to shut up. And, uh, and so I went home that night. And before I got home, my cousin was telling me, Now, Phil, the devil's going to come and tell you it's not real. It's not real. You, you hang on to it. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're going to speak in tongues. And that will be the evidence of your salvation. And I'm listening to him. I'm thinking, every bit of this is wrong. I went to bed at night and I had a dream. First time I ever had a dream in color. And, and I had the dream. And this big cloud just came over me. And the voice just simply said, Phil, that is not for everyone. I said, cool. And never sought anything like that again from that point on. So we walk carefully with these things and we just simply say, Lord, I have brothers and sisters who are genuine in their faith, who believe they have a prayer language. You know what I'll do? I give them liberty in that. I'm not going to say, no, you don't. I'm going to say, I don't understand it. I don't know the need of it because I'd rather pray knowing what I'm praying. But I give them the liberty in it. And I just begin to walk in that. Um, and so that, I hope this is helpful, but you'll have to work some of these things out as we walk through this together. What? With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. That's right. So if y'all come up to me and say chandelier. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> It is. <laughs> That's why I said that. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you that we can read your word, study, look at the depths, ask difficult questions. And Father, none of us has all of this. One day we will know as we are known. Uh, Father, until then, we live in the already but not yet. And Father, we ask that you would continue to sanctify us, grow us, to know you even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scotts Hill. Till next time.